Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Father, we thank you for this uh, absolute privilege to come here this morning and to worship you. We thank you, Lord, uh, that the veil between you and us has been torn because of the blood of Christ. We thank you we can come into your presence and that we can boldly come before the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And Lord, it is our heart's desire to, to be near you today. We want to be close to you. We want to know you even better than we do right now. Father, open the eyes of our hearts so that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Illuminate our hearts and minds as we read and preach and receive your word today. Bless your word as it is scattered into our hearts. Help it to take root so it can grow up and bear fruit in our lives. Father, it's uh, our prayer that you would, uh, you would help us to humbly approach your word in a way that, that lets your word speak for itself. Help us to set aside our traditions and our preconceived notions and the influences of our culture and whatever we might subconsciously bring to the table as we seek to submit our minds and our hearts and our lives to the truth and the authority of your holy word. And Father, help us not only to be hearers today, but to do, be doers of the word as well, as we're being transformed into the image of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile device, or you can grab one of those Bibles in front of you there, you can turn with me to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter number 10. And, um, you know, some uh, in our culture, it's Instead of assuming that everybody knows where we're at, um, if you're new to the Bible, one quick way to learn is uh, John is the uh, fourth book of the uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then it is right before the book of Acts. And so uh, we're going to be in John chapter number 10, and uh, we will begin reading in verse 22. And the word of the Lord reads, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who, is, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. This is the word of the Lord. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother, Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge, yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. Some have been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days, but the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. I will go with them, trusting to the same support. It will bear me over as it has for them. I want to welcome you back to um, part four of our, our series. It's the final part of the series titled uh, Grace uh, Greater Than We Can Imagine. As we talked about, uh, the point of this series has been to help us, you and, and me, to get a foundational understanding of what grace is or, or the grace that God himself gives us 
is. Because let's face it, grace is a really, really big subject. And, and many people have lots of different ideas about what, what they think grace is. And, 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 and to make things worse, we live in a, um, a world where people are basically biblically illiterate. Most people have never read the Bible. They don't even know what the Bible says. And in addition to that, to make that worse, then we live in a culture that has embraced you know, the postmodern philosophy that all truth is relative. And so it's really easy to see how people can have these distorted views of what grace is. And so in light of that, we have been taking a foundational biblical look at number one, um, what God's grace actually is. Number two, what it means for us and his creation. And number three, what we need to do and how we need to live in light of God's Grace, And so we began this series by, by talking about the fact that if, if we're going to understand grace from a biblical perspective, all right, what we need to do is we need to build our understanding, you know, uh, of grace on who God is as the grace giver and then who we are as the recipients of God's grace. And so what we did early on is we established that God, the giver of grace, is sovereign, he is righteous, he is absolutely just, and while we, on the other hand, as the recipients of that grace, we are finite unrighteous and openly rebellious to God. And so right from the beginning, what we need to understand is that God absolutely owes us nothing. All right. He owes us nothing at all. He is completely infinite. He is all good. We are finite and corrupt by our nature. And as a result, if God just decided he was fed up with the whole thing and simply decided to, to wipe it all out and start all over, he would be completely just and justified to do so. God owes us absolutely nothing, not even life, not happiness, not wealth, not comfort, not love. God owes us nothing, actually, but his immediate judgment and his wrath, because God is good and we are not. But God, because of his amazing love, his mind-blowing love, he is patient toward us, holding back his wrath so that we uh, may come to repentance as the Apostle Peter tells us, God is kind to us and he is patient with us and he doesn't immediately give us the justice we deserve, but instead he gives us many, many good gifts that we don't deserve. In fact, that's the very definition of what grace is, is to get an undeserved gift. It's the undeserved gift of God is what grace is. And God, amazingly, he gives everyone these undeserved gifts. Through his common grace, God gives all of mankind gifts, Okay, gifts that no person on earth deserves. He gives us, every one of us, life. That's a gift from God. Understand, you are alive today because God decided to give you that gift of your life. Your family is alive today because of God's grace. Every breath that you take is a gift from God. You're the sleeping that you, that you slept in a warm bed last night. You know, the car that you drove in this morning, having clothes to wear, all gifts from God. Love, hope, joy, affection. Okay, all gracious, generous, undeserved gifts from God. Okay, gifts that God gives to everyone. He pours out, he lavishes his goodness in all of mankind just through his common grace. And if that was all, if it's all that God gave us, it would be so much more than we deserve. But not only does God give to mankind his common grace, he gives us his special grace. All right, and for those who repent and believe the gospel and put their trust in Jesus, God gives the gift of eternal life. That is his special grace. And his special grace is made possible because he, because he satisfied his own justice by sending his son Jesus uh, to the cross to bear the penalty of our sin. God himself paid the price for us to be rescued. And so this special grace isn't free. 
The special grace costs God dearly so that by grace that we could repent and believe the gospel and be saved. So God gives us physical, you know, uh, life through his common grace, and he gives us eternal life through his special grace. And then if, if that by itself weren't enough for us to just glorify him and to worship him the rest of our lives, he continues to give us the ability to confidently come directly to him in our time of need. He gives us the grace to live our lives. We have direct access to God anytime we need. The author of Hebrews says that, that then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in the time of need. God gives us the gift of life. He pays the penalty of our sins so we can have a relationship with him, right? And then he turns and says, anytime you need something, I'm here for you, right? I'm here to give you grace and mercy anytime that you need. Not to mention all the other promises that God makes us, you know, like I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, or the promises that he will strengthen us and give us wisdom when we ask. My friends, that right there, that's, that's grace. That's the grace of God, that undeserved, unmerited, unearned, over-the-top grace of God. And then last week, we really, you know, talked about the hard stuff. Right? The fact that, that since God has given us grace that saves and that he gives us grace to live by, as a natural consequence in that grace, God expects for that grace to transform us in a way that we begin to give that grace away to other people. That if we, we really receive that grace, in, in, you know, that special grace, and we truly understand what we have been saved from, the natural outworking of that grace should be for us to be gracious towards other people. The fact that we are forgiven of so much should make us forgiving of other people as well. That was the hard one, right? In fact, Jesus even said, he commands it. He says that, that as you have been forgiven, so must you forgive. For the Christian, forgiving other people is not optional. It is just part of the equation. So to recap where, we, where we've been in the last few weeks, God is completely sovereign and righteous and is gracious to us, to those of us who don't deserve it because we by our natures are sinners. And then God is so gracious to us in his common grace that he gives to all of mankind these special gifts. And then he gives those who will repent and believe the gospel, he gives his special grace of eternal life. And then he gives us unfettered access to him by the blood of Christ, to help in the time that we need to live our lives. God expects then for us to be remade in the image of Christ and to be gracious toward other people. That's where we've been so far. Well, building off that today, we're going to wrap up this series with one uh, more extremely important detail about the doctrine of grace that we need to talk about. And uh, you see, we've been talking about the grace that saves us and the grace that enables us to live and the grace you know, that, that we need to give away. But today we're going to talk about grace assured. And um, nearly, early on um, this week, I was thinking about this particular subject and I was thinking about the text that we've read, you know, related to this subject. And um, I got the news that, uh, about the loss of our, my good friend and our brother in Christ, Richard Sears. Um, it just really was out of the blue, you know. And uh, when I, I got the news, I was just kind of shocked. I was saddened. You know, because Richard was my friend. But in the same time, I was, I was actually encouraged um, because I know where he is. But, um, but it's also by the way things work out. You see, when Richard turned his life around um, a few years ago, 
uh, he, he started coming to our church and he started following Christ. And one of the things that he was deeply, deeply, deeply concerned about was the assurance of his salvation. He wanted to make sure he was saved, right? In fact, he and I had many, many conversations about this subject. And the burning question that was in his heart is a question I think that's really important for all of us to, to address. Because the, the question that he kept asking over and over again is, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian Richard was concerned about his salvation. He wanted to know if, in fact, he was saved. And this, was, this, was, this is a super important question for us because, because can we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, who throw ourselves upon his, his mercy and cling to the cross, do we have assurance of our salvation? Can we know that we are saved? Can we live with the confidence that, that when all is said and done, after our life is over, can we know for sure that God will save us and take us home instead of giving us the punishment that we absolutely deserve? Because that's, that's what we hope for, right? We place our trust in Christ because of that. We're hoping that God will save us. Is our hope well-founded? Can we know and be confident that we belong to God? That's the question. And, and again, let me be right up front with you. I actually think that this should be a relatively simple issue to put to rest, but for some reason it's not. You know, and it's not because of a couple of things. Number one, uh, there are just those who firmly believe based, you know, on how they read and understand the Bible that you can lose your salvation, that, 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 that you, can, you can be saved, and then at some point in the future that you can be unsaved. Now, now, people who believe this, they're actually, they fall on a wide spectrum, okay? There are those on the one end of the spectrum who believe that you can be saved one moment and then lost the very next moment because of sin. They think that you've been walking along with God and, and everything is great and you've done everything that you can possibly do to be obedient and then accidentally right before you die, you know, stub your toe and cuss and sin and then suddenly, you know, you, you've sinned and you've died in your sin and then, then you've lost your salvation, right? Because... Because some people believe that you can't die without confessing every little sin. Otherwise, you're lost. And there are a number of people who, who believe that and, that and and that you're always kind of on this fence. Moment by moment, there, there's never really any, any hope or joy because you never fully know if you've been saved because, because you can sin at any moment and die apart from God. And then on the other end of the spectrum... There are people who, who think that you can have quite a bit of confidence, you know, in being saved and you can have a certain security in that, but they still believe that, that, that you have to be mindful of your sin because they believe that a person can fall deep enough into sin that they actually walk away from Christ altogether, forsaking their salvation. They believe that you can fall so deep into sin that you can forfeit the ability to be saved by your faith. And this particular perspective actually is in response to, um, to the second reason why this is a complicated issue. You see, the second reason why this is a complicated issue is because in the 20th century, in Western culture, there has been a rise of a phenomenon called easy believism. I didn't make that term up. It's just what it is. Okay, easy believism is simply this, that, that there are people who just simply believe all you have to do is say, I believe in Jesus and invite him into your heart and pray some prayer and then you're completely saved. And then once you're saved, you're always saved regardless of your motivation and regardless of what happens in your life. And that, 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 that's all there is to God's work uh, of salvation. And I actually have personal experience with this issue. You see, when I was five years old, my grandmother took me to the church and she took me before the altar and said, Sherman, do you believe in Jesus? All right, if your grandma is like standing there looking at you and says, do you believe in Jesus? What do you say to grandma? 
right? What am I supposed to say? I said, yes, grandma, I believe in Jesus, right? She's been telling me I need to believe in Jesus since I'm like three years old, right? I'm like, yes, I believe in Jesus. Can I have some more candy, please? Thank you. Yeah. So of course I believe in Jesus. Grandma, you told me to believe. So what am I supposed, you know? And then she says, okay, then let's pray this prayer really fast. Repeat these words after me and pray this prayer. And I do that. And suddenly, you know, as I'm praying, she starts crying, right? And all of a sudden everybody starts hooting and hollering. And they start shouting, he's saved, he's saved. Praise the Lord, he's saved. And I'm excited, like, what are we excited about, you know? Because I had no idea what they were talking about, what this meant. This is, that's, that's my personal experience with easy believism. Because suddenly, you know, I say some words, you know, by accident, I'm tricked into being saved by my grandma at five years old. Is that how that works? I mean, but let me just tell you for a fact, I was not saved. Okay. I was anything but saved at that point. I didn't have an understanding at all what sin was. I didn't have any understanding of who I was in my relationship with God. I didn't realize if I would have died as a young teenager, the wrath of God would have abided on me because I was his enemy. I didn't know these things. I didn't realize I needed to be saved. I didn't actually believe the gospel because I didn't even know the gospel. I was just told, pray this prayer. I just believed that somehow I was saved because I prayed some magic prayer that my grandma told me to pray. That's easy believism. It's the, it's the believing in Jesus without actually really understanding the gospel. And let me just tell you, all right? You know, let me just tell you about this and, and, and we'll just lead you right there, right? And that right there, you know where that led me personally? It led for me to have a really debauched life of sin. Because for the, for the first part of my adult life, I didn't have, you know, an understanding of the gospel. And me living in my sin wasn't a big deal because I was a Christian. I was forgiven, Right? That's what it was. It didn't matter what I did. I just lived my life. And then as I got older and became an atheist, then what happens? That's what that led to me. That's easy believism. Okay? I just pray some prayer and I'm saved. And that's the devastating reality, right? And, and what's worse is that the church is filled with people who think that way. That's how you come to faith. The church is full of people who claim to be Christians and claim to be saved, but they don't even live like it. People who say, yes, I believe in Jesus and, and I invite him in my heart, but nothing in their life has changed. They just continue to walk the same walk and live the same life and never, ever address the sin issues in their life, right? They just have something else to do on Sundays that they didn't have before. And they believe since then, I've said some prayer, then I'm saved. You know, and I, I've, I've, I know personally people like this, good friends of mine, I'm pleading with them. You know, like, I know I drink a lot, but who cares? I'm a Christian, right? I know that, you know, I shouldn't do, I'm doing what I shouldn't be doing. I'm going to live with my girlfriend who's still married to someone else. But, you know, I'm saved because I said that prayer at some point, you know. Once saved, always saved. That's the idea behind easy believism. I pray some prayer and I, I'm saved even when my life bears no fruit of it. And that's the issue, Right? That's what makes this so complicated. Because on the one hand, you have people who think, you know, if you are in sin, you know, you've lost your salvation. One moment to the next, right? And on the other hand, you have people who, who said, I prayed some prayer, right? And once saved, always saved. And I got my fire insurance, regardless of what my life looks like. Well, this is where we're going to begin today. Is what I want to do is I want to lay my cards on the table for you. And I want to tell you, you know, clearly, eyeball to eyeball completely clear. I believe with all my heart in the assurance of the salvation 
of the believer. And what I mean by that is if you have 100% put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ Jesus, and you understand that where you're coming from as a sinner, and you understand that you need to be saved, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is in fact Lord, and you believe in your heart that he was resurrected from the dead, and you repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved. If that is you, then you most assuredly have eternal life. Jesus says in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that word half is emphatically, it is emphatically present tense. That means you have it the moment that you actually believe. You possess it the moment you believe. And here's the thing about eternal life. If you can lose it, it's not eternal. Do you understand that? That's the whole idea of eternal, is it's, that it's forever Right? If you have eternal life and you can lose it, then it was never eternal to begin with. It ended, which means it's temporal. Eternal life is eternal, and it's for those who repent and believe in Christ alone for their salvation. And those who trust in Christ can be assured that they are saved and not have to live in fear somehow that they're going to lose their salvation. I'm convinced with all my heart of that. And today what I want to do is I want to share with you why I can believe that, and I'm going to walk you through how you can believe that as well. So let's look at our text again. John chapter 10, beginning verse 22, it reads, At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. Now, this is Hanukkah, okay? It didn't say Hanukkah, but that's what it is. It says right there, it was the winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so that the Jews... So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. Now think about this. Jesus has been walking around. He's demonstrating by his power that he's the Messiah, right? He has healed people. He's performed miracles that no one's ever seen before. He's speaking with heavenly authority over and over again. He makes several I am statements to, to validate that he is in fact God. And, and, and the religious Jews are asking him to make it clear to them. They're like, like, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And Jesus answered, I told you and you don't believe. He said, I've told you. But the problem is, but is, is, it's not that I haven't proven it to you. The problem is you just won't believe. In fact, he goes on and says, he goes, the works that I do in my father... In the Father's name, bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And I want you to understand what he's saying here. He says, it's not that there's no evidence that you don't believe that I'm the Messiah. You don't believe because you don't belong to me. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Here's what this text is saying. Number one, the first thing that we need to just come to terms with is he tells the Jews they don't believe because they don't belong to Christ. All right? They are not his sheep. Understand how this is worded. Okay? He does not say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you don't believe because you, because you are not my sheep. Do you hear the difference? What Jesus is saying, the Father didn't give you to me if you're, you know, because you're incapable of believing. You're just not going to ever believe no matter what happens, no matter what evidence I give. You're, you're, you're so hardened, so stiff-necked. You are so calloused. That you're incapable of believing regardless of what I do and regardless of what I say. I can tell you plainly to your face and you still won't believe. Why? 
Because salvation is a supernatural work of God. Salvation is 100% the work of God. Otherwise, it's not grace. He who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. Salvation is the work of God. He says, if you don't believe, it's because you're not my sheep. Because my sheep, he says, hear my voice. Why? He says, because they belong to me. The father has given them to Jesus, he says. The father didn't give unbelieving Jews to him. He gave Jesus the ones that would believe in him. And, he, and, and look what it says. He goes, he says, I know them. I know them. This intimate knowing Jesus, the good shepherd, knows his sheep. Theologian Arthur Peake notes that each of the sheep are known by Christ by a special knowledge, a knowledge of approbation. They are valued by him because they are entrusted to him by the Father. They are the Father's love gift to him, and so he prizes them highly. The sheep of our inestimable, inestimable value to Christ and he will do anything, including give his life to protect them and to keep them. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice. This is really kind of like an important thing because when you heard the gospel, when it finally made sense to you and you turned and you repented and believed, you did so because you heard the shepherd's call. Right? You heard the shepherd's voice. I had many people in my life when I was growing up, you know, try to speak the gospel to me many times. And I just didn't respond to it. I never listened to it. But then there was that time finally, you know, that my heart was ready by God sovereignly working out the circumstances in my life and, and tilling the soil of my heart that I heard the shepherd's voice. And I responded by putting my faith in Jesus Christ when I finally really heard the gospel. And then Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. When the shepherds call, when he calls, the sheep respond and they follow. That's how it is with believers, right? He calls, we follow. And understand, if, if we don't follow, it's because he didn't call. Understand that you might have thought he called, you might have believed he called, but if, if, if he didn't call, if you don't follow, then he didn't call. Make no mistake, but if he calls you, you will follow. That's how you know that you belong to him. When you hear his voice, you will begin to follow him. Now, does that mean that we're going to have a perfect life? No. No one's going to be perfect, not this side of eternity. But your life absolutely will change. If you heard the shepherd's voice and you follow him, your life will change. And you will follow the shepherd. Why? Why will we follow him? Because we belong to him. That's what it says. We belong to him. You were his. The father has given you to him. And he loves you and he prizes you. And as a good shepherd, he won't allow you to become lost or stolen. In fact, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, please hear what Jesus is saying here. Christ gives the sheep his followers eternal life. That life comes from Christ. He has the authority to give it. Right? Jesus has the, the power. He is God in the flesh to give life eternal that never ends. He has the power to save us and he has the power as the good shepherd to keep us saved. 
And Jesus proves, what he said, proves that with what he says next. He says, and they will never perish. Now, this statement right here, this is why it's important for people in the church to begin to learn the original languages. Because in the Greek, it literally means they will not never perish. Okay. Now, the use of a double negative in English is just bad grammar. But in, but in, the, in the Greek itself, though, it is, it's, it's emphatic. Okay? What, is he, what, what he's saying, the equivalent of what he's saying is that they will never, ever, under any circumstances, perish. Nothing you can ever do can make them perish. Once they belong to me, perishing, my, my sheep's perishing is out of the question because they belong to me and I'm taking care of them. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the eternal security of the believer. If, and if that weren't enough, see, this is what I love about Jesus. It's that he, just, he just keeps coming back to it. If that's not enough, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will be able to forcefully remove the sheep of Christ out of his hand. No one, not the devil, not the government, not your mom, okay? No one can take you out of Jesus' hand. You can't even remove yourself out of Christ's hand. That's what the language bears out. Once you belong to him, you belong to him forever. He has the power to keep you saved. I, used to, I like to use this, this analogy of, of, of the lifeboat. We know that Jesus is all-knowing because he's God, right? He knows everything there is to know about you. He pulls you into the lifeboat only to turn around and throw you back out. Why? He already knew, right? He knows what you're capable of, right? What's the point of saving you if he can't keep you saved? And once again, if that's not enough, Jesus says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. William McDonald notes, he says, not only is the believer in the hand of Christ, but he's also in the Father's hand as well. This is a twofold guarantee of safety. Understand what Jesus is saying here. He says, there's no one, no one, no one's greater than my Father, all right? He created the universe. God is absolutely 100% sovereign, all right? And, and John Piper actually points out, he says, there isn't a molecule in all of the universe that is outside of the control of God, God reigns supreme, and this is the greatest, he's the greatest force in all of existence. So when Jesus says, no one will snatch you out of my father's hand, no one will. It's absolutely impossible. Like I said, the devil can't, Apple computer can't, Donald Trump can't, your ex-girlfriend can't, right? No one, not even you can snatch yourself out of the father's hand. No one and nothing. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 when he wrote, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if there's a set of verses you want to memorize, that's the ones that you want to. If you belong to Christ, you have salvation, and that salvation is secure. It cannot be taken from you. You can't lose it. You are safe in the hands of the good shepherd. You are safe in the hands of the father. Eternal security, assurance of salvation is a very real thing for the true Christian. But there's the other side of the other issue that we have to come to terms with. One of the things that we need to be really clear about, one of the things that we need to get eyeball to eyeball honest about is the truth of what it means to be a true Christian. This this, this right here was the real issue for Richard in his mind. This is what he was really struggling with. What does it mean to be a true Christian? 
Because the truth is there are going to be people who claim to be Christians, who claim to follow Jesus, who are actually not believers. They're not true Christians. <clears throat> They're not the sheep of Christ. If you remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And, I, and then to them I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are and there will continue to be people who think that they're Christians and that they're saved because they prayed some prayer at some point in their life. <clears throat> These people that, that, that performed some ritual in church at some point, they walked forward at some point. But Jesus says they don't belong to him. That's what he's saying. It's not everyone who thinks that they're a Christian is. And he said this in the context of trees bearing fruit, saying that good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. He said, there are people, people that think they belong to me. They think that they have eternal life. But I'm going to tell them, away from me, I never knew you. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we have to come to terms with the fact that a person can absolutely be confident in their security but they must absolutely be converted. They absolutely must be born again. They must be a true Christian, which leads to the real essential question then. How do we know? How do we know that we're the true Christian? I mean, I mean this is the question I think we all have to be clear about. We, how do we know that we have eternal security? I mean, we know, eternal we know eternal security and assurance of salvation is available to those who truly believe, but how do we become a true question? Well, Jesus, on his own, gives us an answer for that. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you're truly following Christ, you're going to repent and believe the gospel. That's how you become a true Christian. Now, understand what this means. All right? When Jesus says repent and believe, he's not talking about two different disconnected things. He's not saying step one, repent, and then step two, believe. Actually, the expression that he's talking about represents the same event. Repentance and belief are, are two sides of the same coin. One goes with the other. You can't have one without the other. In fact, let me explain this. <clears throat> you see, when you begin to believe in something that you didn't believe before, Something in you changed, okay? If you believe in something today that you didn't believe in yesterday, something had to change inside of you in order for you to begin to believe, right? The truth is that you're not the same after you believe as you were before you believe. So what is it that changed? What changed that caused you to actually believe? Well, what changed is your mind, your mind changed. The center of your intellect and will and emotions and your decision-making process, that changed. How you thought about something changed. How you feel about something changed. Your thinking itself changed. In order for you to believe something you didn't believe before, your mind has to change about it. Well, that's exactly what repentance is. The word repentance in, in, in the Greek literally means to change your mind. That's the idea is that you think a certain way, you believe a certain way, you feel a certain way, then something happens and then you change your mind and you think and you believe and you feel differently. That is repentance and then belief. They're essentially the same event. 
That's what Jesus is saying you need to do. In order to be, to be a true believer, you need to repent and believe. Your mind needs to, to change about the truth of the gospel. And, then, and as a result, you need to believe it. When, uh, when John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's what he's talking about. Your mind needs to change about Jesus and who he is and who you are in light of that. And then put your faith in that. And a perfect example of this that we find in the Bible is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, he, he had some things he believed about Christ, okay? He had a certain way he thought. He believed that Jesus to be the greatest blasphemer that had ever set foot on the face of the earth. He believed that the Christians were a religious um, minority of criminals following the greatest false teacher that had ever uh, drew a breath. He believed that, that his salvation that he had was by works that he had to do for God. And he believed with all his heart that this, um, this Christian faith was dangerous to the world and that it had to be destroyed by any means necessary. And he thought he was going to glorify God by taking, making his personal mission to destroy it. That's exactly how he felt. That's exactly what he thought. That's what he believed. He believed he needed to pursue and arrest Christians in order to stop the spread of the Christian cancer. And that's what he was believing when he set out for Damascus to go destroy the church there. He was going with orders to destroy the church there, to arrest people and have them executed. But then something happened on the way. <clears throat> Paul encountered Christ and he repented. His mind changed. How he thought changed. How he felt changed. His entire understanding of reality changed. He came face to face with the fact that what he believed about God and all of reality and about what Christ himself, all that changed. He, he realized, I was wrong. His whole perspective was wrong. And now he could see that and his mind changed as a result. He now thought that Jesus was the Son of God, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And now he believed that, that, that the Christians were the people of God. He believed the gospel. And because his mind changed, and because his thoughts changed, and because his emotions changed, everything began to change, then his, his, his life itself began to change. After being baptized, he began to minister and preach the gospel, and he was persecuted for the for the very same faith that he was persecuting. You see, to repent is to realize that all of your thinking, your entire view about reality is wrong. And then what you do, once you understand it, you see and you submit yourself to God's truth. To repent is to see and to submit the truth about who you are and about who God is and who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That's what it means to repent. Your mind, your intellect, your emotions, your decision-making processes, all that changes. Now the question then is, have you repented? Has your mind changed? Has that change of mind changed your intellect? Has it changed the, your will? Has it changed your emotions? The sins that you once loved, do you now hate? The holiness that you once ignored, do you now desire for that in your life? The Christ that you didn't believe in and wanted nothing to do with, do you now esteem him and love him and desire him? Do you consider that the kingdom of heaven worth more than all the world could offer you? These are the kinds of things that indicate that you have actually repented. That you really have had your mind and your heart changed. These are the kinds of things that are what's called the fruit of repentance. And this repentance 
If it's true, repentance leads you then to believe because not only must we repent, we must believe in Jesus Christ. One is connected to the next. We must recognize that there is nothing inside of us that can save us. As Paul Washer quotes the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. We must recognize that we have only one hope and it's 100% of that hope is found in the work and the person of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. We must understand that, 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 that fully, that we are to fully believe that we cannot save ourselves. It's only by the grace through faith in Christ. That's it. We must repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how we're saved. Now, if you've done that and you truly believe in Christ, you have without question eternal security and assurance of your salvation. But how do you know that you've truly repented and believed? How do you know that your salvation is real? Well, one of the ways that you know is that the work of God that he began in you will continue. He who began a good work in you is faithful to bring its completion. The work of God he began and he will continue. Now, I'm not saying that, that this emotional high you felt when you first got saved is going to continue, because it won't. That's just the way that is. But what will continue is that you will continue to grow in grace. You will continue to deepen in your repentance. You, your, your life will continue to change. You will continue to deepen in your faith. Little by little, you're being transformed even more into the image of Christ. That is how you know now, does that mean that we're going to be perfect and not make any mistakes? No. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, the truth is that Christians fall into sin. And sometimes some Christians fall deep into sin for an extended period of time. But the difference is, this is the difference. Real Christians cannot continuously live in a state of carnality. They cannot continually live in a state of unrepentant sin. They cannot continually live in a state of immaturity. Because as the Apostle Paul teaches, we've said, he who began a work in you will bring it to completion. God finishes what he starts. God completes what he sets in motion. Um, a, a preacher that I listened to, fiery preacher, by the way, that I listened to, um, his name is Paul Washer, and he cites Hebrews 12, and he says, this is his commentary, he says, one of the greatest signs of true conversion is that God will watch over you with loving parental care, and he will even discipline you and chastise you when you turn off the path. Not because his attitude has changed toward you, all right, but because he loves you and he desires your holiness. If you're a true Christian, then God... The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And if God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you, he will bring deep conviction of your sin. And because of that, you will feel compelled to change and to grow. That's how you know that you belong to God. That's how you know that you're saved. If you repent and believe the gospel, your life will change. The Holy Spirit will convict you of your sin and you will grow towards spiritual maturity which is what I would tell Richard Sears when he came to visit. I would tell him the reason why that he felt such deep conviction after hearing the word of God preached to him is because the Holy Spirit was convicting him, urging him to change. And that conviction is evidence, actually, I told him, of his salvation. 
And once he made peace with that, his whole attitude in life changed because the conviction that you feel is the correction from your heavenly father, which means you are his child. You belong to him. You're one of his sheep, which means you have heard his voice and follow him. You see, there's a lot of people who want to think that when you follow Jesus, everything's happy all the time. But, you know, the picture of of Jesus being the shepherd is really an important picture I don't think a lot of us understand the analogy. You see, when a shepherd was trying to, take a, to, to correct a, a wayward sheep, he would take the, the, the sheep and he would break its legs. That way the sheep was 100% dependent on him. And that way the shepherd would carry him around with him everywhere he went. And then as the sheep began to heal again, then he would become very familiar with who the shepherd was and know that he could depend and it became a lifeline. And so then after the sheep was healed, he would follow. Believe me, if you don't feel the pain of your conviction, you might want to see who your shepherd is. That, convic- that conviction is the evidence of your salvation, right? Because that conviction you feel is the correction. Your heavenly father is, is working you, means you're his child. You belong to him. You were his sheep, okay? And when he calls you, you'll hear his voice and you will follow him, which means you are saved by the grace of God, right? And that grace is assured for you. You and I, if we believe in Christ, we have the assurance of salvation. When you need to worry is when you feel no conviction of your sin. If you're living in open, unrepentant sin that you know in your heart of hearts that that should bother you, if that's not bothering you, I would worry. Or if you feel that you have no desire to worship, that you don't have any desire to glorify God in your life, I, I would worry. If you feel like there's no reason for, for you to be different than the world, if you embrace what the world you know, holds as far as lust, and you embrace the culture's assessment of truth, which is there's no real truth at all, I would worry. But if you have repented you know, to the way that you used to think, and you understand that you are a broken, broken sinner, Right? And as such, you have been an enemy of God and you, you now know that you have no ability to fix it on your own except to throw yourself wholly onto the, to Christ by faith and believe in his life, death, and resurrection and to cling to him desperately with all your heart. If that's what happened to you, then you were saved and your salvation is secure. And it's not secure because of who you are. It is secure because of who your God is. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much because there are many, many days I have to question. I see the sin in my life and I go, why am I still like this? And I feel deep pain and conviction because of that and I realize that's you. And I realize it's, I realize it's you because you are in me as you've promised and it's the evidence of the fact that you love me and that you are trying to change me and that you're trying to work into me your holiness, Lord. Not that I could be holy on my own at all, but only by your grace, only by your blood. And I pray, Father God, that we would all take that to heart, Father. That, that you know, this is, this is that line we have to walk, Lord. You know, there's just so much of us that just wants to just make this really soft and easy and just say, oh, all you have to worry about is Jesus loves you and that's it, you know, but, and, and, and that's the truth we, we, that, that is. But one of the things that we lose sight of all the time, Lord, is that if, 
if we don't have to deal with our sin, right? If, if there's no wrath, if, if, if you're not, if your wrath is not coming against unrighteousness, Lord, then there was no reason for Jesus to die in the first place. Let our hearts be moved to that. Let us look to the cross as a source of what we believe, Lord. On the cross, we see both your, your hatred of sin and your love for us at the same time. At the cross, wrath and grace come full circle. Your word says that you were pleased to crush your son for us so that we could come to you. Let us not come, Lord God, thinking that, that our sin is acceptable in your sight. Help us to be broken before you so you can heal us and so we can put our faith truly in Christ. Help us to repent and believe. And Father, I pray for those who are here that if they don't know you, Lord, help them to come and repent. Help them to change their hearts and minds. Convict them of their sins so that they can receive Jesus Christ. I pray, Father God, for those who don't know you. Help them to know you today. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, then help us to grow ever more into the image of your Son. I pray, Father God, that you're glorified in what we do. And I pray, Father God, that, that you were lifted up high and that the name of Jesus will be declared on all of our lips as we go in our lives. And Father, that you, Lord God, would reign supreme in our community. And Father, that uh, you would just be glorified. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.